Alright, Philippians chapter 1. If you will flip to Philippians. Not trying to be flippant. That's all I got. Turn to the letter of Paul to the Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Bless this time, Father, to your purposes. May your word not come back empty, but as you promised, may it come back full, succeeding in the matter for which you sent it. In Jesus' name, amen. So good morning. Are you having a good day? Yeah? Yeah. Okay, some are... Some are not sure. Some are like, yeah, doctor gives me two weeks, but you know, whatever. Listen, we are to be a joyful people. Thank you. There's so much joy to share this morning. Let me begin with G.K. Chesterton, writer of the classic work Orthodoxy. And if you've never read Orthodoxy, you need to read it. G.K. Chesterton, late 1800s, early 1900s, was an English author and poet and and, uh, a theologian, a remarkable thinker. And in his work Orthodoxy, he writes this entire book and then he finishes it this way. Let me read you the closing section. Joy, which was the small publicity of the pagan, is the gigantic secret of the Christian. And as I close this chaotic volume, I open again to the strange small book from which all Christianity came. And I am again haunted by a kind of confirmation. The tremendous figure which fills the Gospels, towers in this respect, as in every other, above all the thinkers who ever thought themselves tall. The pathos was natural, almost casual. The Stoics, ancient and modern, were proud of concealing their tears. He never concealed his tears. He showed them plainly on his open face at any daily sight, such as the fear of, or the far sight of his native city. And yet, he concealed something. Solemn supermen and imperial diplomatists are proud of restraining their anger. He never restrained his anger. He flung furniture down the front steps of the temple. He asked men how they expected to escape the damnation of hell. Yet, yet he restrained something. I say it with reverence. There was in that shattering personality a thread that must be called shyness. There was something that he hid from all men when he went up a mountain to pray. There was something that he covered constantly by abrupt silence or impetuous isolation. There was some one thing that was too great for God to show us when he walked upon our earth. And I have sometimes fancied that it was his Mirth, his joy. C.S. Lewis once wrote that the serious business of heaven is joy. That that's where you really get down to it. You know, serious business here is just, well, serious. But the serious business of heaven is joy. And where Jesus is present, there must of a nature be joy. Do you get that? Where Jesus is present, there must be joy. To talk about Jesus, to pray to Jesus, to share Jesus in a fellowship is to know joy and experience joy. 
And some of y'all here this morning are not in a joyful place. Or you can put it on, you know, when the pastor says, how are you doing? Woohoo! I'm good right now. Well, that means you're happy. But are you joyful? When you get home and the door closes behind you, are you joyful? Are you back in that place of real life despair? The Bible tells us, Psalm 1611, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. Joy. First Peter chapter 1 verse 8, Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. That is the Christian experience. Joy inexpressible. Is that, is that sense in your life that other people look at and say, I don't get it. Everything goes wrong for that guy, but he still seems to have joy. She still smiles even when, when the worst of circumstances are surrounding her. I don't understand. See, the reality is, in the presence of Jesus Christ, there is fullness of joy. Now, be excited about this. It's really interesting. This was pointed out to me at the very end of second service that Ephesians that we just finished, listen to how it closes. Grace be with those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Because His love is incorruptible. So we finish Ephesians with love and we open Philippians with joy. First two gifts of the Spirit. Love and then joy. And that always is the pattern. The joy that we're talking about, the joy that I'm going to share much more with you about over the next few weeks, is a joy that flows out of the love of God. It flows from the realization He loves you, He died for you to prove it, He rose again so that we might be with Him. He loves, He loves, He loves, and therefore, we got joy. And that's the connection, the love and the joy. And in this fourth now, this fourth letter, fourth prison letter of Paul, he writes to his friends in Philippi for the purpose of joy, and note this, from a place of joy. Prison? Incarceration? This is now the second time that Paul is long-term in prison. Oh, he'd been imprisoned many times throughout his ministry career. But he spent two years in prison in Caesarea. And now he's at least two years in prison in Rome. And he's writing this letter to his friends in Philippi. And he is filled with joy. And that should tell us something. It should help us understand And we're going to see this more plainly, that joy and happiness are two completely separate things. Happiness is hap. Have you heard the word hap? It's an old English word. It means chance. It's where we get the word happenstance. It's where the word happiness comes from. It is chance uh, pleasure. Hap. Happiness is chance. Joy. Joy is certainty. Happiness is fleeting. Joy endures. Happiness comes and goes. It just depends on the day or the hour or the minute. Joy is constant. Happiness is circumstantial. Joy is essential. And it makes sense looking at our culture and our country. According to a recent Harris Poll Happiness Index, which you can look up, fewer, quote, fewer than one in three Americans are happy this year. That comes in at 31%. 31% of Americans would consider themselves happy. And that's down from 35% last year. So we're on a 4% slide right now. And they go on to say that the happiness or the sense of happiness among Americans is at an all-time low. I read that and I thought, so much for the American dream. So much for the belief that we are fed from birth in this country that the more we have and the greater the opportunity, the more joy. No. You will find on occasion fleeting happiness. But you will not find joy in the American dream. And I'm not unpatriotic. I love our country. I love what it was founded on. I love the principles that are in the Constitution. But my friends, 
The pursuit of happiness is a pursuit of futility. I don't want happiness because the moment I'm happy, I know in a few moments I may not be anymore. But joy, joy is different. Joy is something that lasts. It's something that I desire. It is not transient. Joy is eternal. It's forever. And there is joy in Jesus Christ. We're hanging on joy right now because there's so much of it in Paul's letter to Philippi. You will see the word over and over. The word joy, kara in the Greek, is fullness of gladness. It's like gladness to the overflow. It's just, can't stop it. It's also, it's also described as calm delight. You know, I like that. Man, it's just, how you doing? I'm chilling. I'm calm. You alright? Yeah. I'm joyful. And that word joy, we see it five times in four chapters. On top of that, we see the word rejoice nine more times. Rejoice is Cairo in the Greek, and it means literally to rejoice exceedingly. So this calm delight, this fullness of gladness, this exceeding rejoicing, that's 14 times in four chapters. And there's another word that's used two more times that also refers to joy, bringing the sum total to 16 in four chapters. All compacted in this one letter. Why? Because Paul, sitting in a Roman, well, sitting in Roman incarceration, recognizes very simply that joy is characteristic of the kingdom of God. And if you're a citizen of that kingdom, rather than any kingdom on this earth, then joy is your promise. In fact, joy, Paul would say, is your experience. Joy in the kingdom. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. Nehemiah was, had gathered all the people there in Jerusalem. You may remember the history of Nehemiah. If you don't, they had all gone back. They come out of Babylonian captivity. Nehemiah yet led a, a second wave of exiles back to try and rebuild the city. And it was hard, slogging work. Roll up your sleeves, sword in one hand and a hammer in the other kind of work. Trying to fend off enemies, build the wall, do the work. And it was heavy and it was long, hot, difficult work. And Nehemiah gathers the people and in verse 10 of chapter 8 says, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I love that. The joy of the Lord is my strength. It's not my hard work ethic. It's not my determination. It's not my self-confidence or arrogance. It is the joy of the Lord that makes me strong. Acts 13.52 says the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You can't be filled with the Spirit and not be filled with joy. Show me a sour, dour Christian and I will show you a Christian that is not a Christian. I will show you one that is not filled with the Holy Spirit. The disciples in the first century church had this continual feeling of joy. It wasn't a fleeting thing. It wasn't Sunday morning they walked out and went, Wow, pastor was on today. That was great. I feel a lot better. And then the phone call comes, or the bill arrives the next day, or the circumstances hit, and you're just bummed. No, they were continually filled with joy. Why? Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And again, Galatians 5, 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. In in the order of things, joy is right up at the top, second only to love. And, And by the way, at Jesus' birth, do you remember what it was that the angel proclaimed? To the shepherds on the hillside, I bring you good news of great information. I bring you good news of of a great new religion. Good news of a great extension of your traditions. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. What a holy irony. On that dark night that a babe is being born in oppressed Bethlehem of oppressed Judea, I bring good news of great joy. And as I shared over communion this morning and another holy irony, an hour or so before he was about to be betrayed, and knowing this, Jesus said in John 15, 11, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. 
How could anybody talk like that on the verge of crucifixion? Joy is not like happiness. Joy is essential. So at the end of the age, I want to hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Don't you love that Jesus didn't say, Come on into heaven? Enter into the joy of your master. It's celebration time. It's party time, heaven style. You might hear all this and go, okay, I'm hearing that, you know, Pastor, you you clearly pulled out a bunch of joy verses out of the Bible. But I know that Jesus was called a man of sorrows. Man of sorrows. So you were reading Isaiah, huh? Isaiah 53. Remember, Isaiah 53 falls in the last part of Isaiah in a section of the prophet Isaiah that's called the book of Comforts. And in Isaiah 53, it does say, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But note that. It says he was a man of sorrows. It doesn't say he was a sorrowful man. He was acquainted with grief, but it doesn't say he was constantly grieving. Like one from men whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Hey, he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows. Why? For the joy set before him. Hebrews 12.2 Why was he a man of sorrows? Because he had to bear our sorrows for the sake of joy. Hebrews 12.2 is amazing. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down to the right hand of God. Jesus looked right through the sorrow, right through the grief, right through the pain of this life existence, and saw nothing but joy. It was for the sake of joy. So I think Chesterton may actually have been right. There was some one thing that was too great for God to show us when He walked upon our earth, and I have sometimes fancied that it was His mirth. You almost get the sense that if Jesus had busted out the kind of heavenly joy that He actually contained within Himself, we couldn't have handled it. It would have blown our minds. It's like the one emotion that he kept somewhat of a lid on, kept it cool. Oh, not that he couldn't crack a joke or make you smile. In fact, a lot of his teachings are are just, they, they do bring a smile to the face. But that Jesus had to hold on to heavenly joy because it was something that we could not have handled had he completely let it out. Well, Philippians. Philippians is a letter of deep joy. If there's any one word that would define or describe this letter, it would be joy. If there was another word that you could slide in next to it, it would be friendship. Paul writes this letter in joyful friendship. This is different than any of his other letters, with one exception being Philemon. But even Philemon, who was his friend, Paul was writing with a reason. He had kind of a cause. You know, he wanted Onesimus to be able to be set free. And we studied that recently here. But that was a friendly letter, and yet a friendly letter saying, look, I need you to do me a favor here, bud. This is different. This letter to Philippi, well, we'll get into this Wednesday night, but it is in form and and in style, it is like what's called the Greek friendship letters. See, the Greek people, they they had, um, letter writing was an art form for them. We have lost that today. If we can't get it into a 154 character tweet, it's too much for us. But back then, letter writing was a thing. And even continued on through the ages until we got kind of, you know, short-sighted and and we have zero attention span. People used to write letters. And it was literally, there were schools of letter writing in Greece. There were ways to write letters. There were forms and formats. And you can see this in all of the uh, Western study. Go back and look at some of the old letters that were written and some of the ancient documents we have. There were very specific styles of writing. And this style is the friendship or family style. Very clear. And again, different than his other letters. It's written in what's, what one scholar called the artless style of Greek friendship or family. It's casual, it's offhanded, it's impromptu. It's what makes Philippians such a joy, really. 
As you go through it, Paul is all over the place. Just like you'd be if you were writing a friend. You know, stream of consciousness. You're writing and you're saying what's going on. Oh, and how are you doing? What's happening? Oh, I thought of this. i got to tell you this too. And oh, did you realize that? And, and by the time you get to the end of the letter, there's really no format. It's just kind of free-flowing thought, like having a conversation with a friend. And that's how Philippians reads. Listen to the opening. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. And I'm glad he included them with the saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Now you'll note a couple of things in this letter. Very quickly you realize gone is the pattern of doctrine followed by application. We've seen this in every letter. In Ephesians we saw this, right? In Colossians we saw this. In Romans and First and Second Corinthians. He, he comes out of the gate and he lays out doctrine. Gives solid foundation. And then after laying that out, he goes into application. Okay, here's the teaching. Here's what you do with it. It's not like that in Philippians. It's not one after the other. It's just kind of a hodgepodge. And there is doctrine. There's some of the deepest, richest doctrine in the church in this letter. But it's not in one section. It's kind of throughout, here and there. There is also application, but it's not laid out as, okay, so here's what you do with this. It's just Paul sharing with his friends. And something else you'll notice that's different at the very outset of this letter, which is unlike almost every other letter of Paul, with the exception of Philemon and First and Second Thessalonians. All of the other letters of Paul, immediately Paul asserts his apostolic authority. Like, listen to this, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Writing to Rome, he wanted to clarify, make sure they understood, I am writing with apostolic authority here. Called as an apostle to Corinth, that was all divided up anyway, Paul had to say, Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, not by the will of any man. He does the same thing when he writes to Galatia. He does the same thing when he writes to Colossae. He asserts the apostolic authority that is his to write to them. He doesn't assert that here. He just says, Paul and servant, Paul and Timothy, a couple of servants of Jesus. And goes right into the letter. And he skips over that. Why? They don't need it. Philippi doesn't need to hear that Paul's an apostle. They know he is. But they also know Paul. It's kind of, you know, it's a little bit like what sometimes I struggle with here in our, our fellowship. I don't want you to know me as pastor. My daughter, Naomi, comes to me last week and goes, Dad, can we call you Pastor Dad? I'm like, no! I'm trying to get away from that. I am not Pastor Dad. I'm just Rick. You know, allow me to be... I'm just going to unload my stuff on you today. Allow me to be just a brother in Christ, part of the fellowship. See, that's Paul and Philippi. They had a friendship that was not dictated on Paul's apostolic authority, but by his love for them and their love for him. And it was deep and rich and real. They know Paul. No need for him to claim to be an apostle. They know that. And so in this joyful letter of friendly encouragement, what we have before us is a friend encouraging his friends to live joyfully. And if you want the doctrinal base of this letter, here it is. Paul is calling on his friends at Philippi to live Christ. Live Christ. Live Christ. He can't do it without sharing the joy of the Lord because to live Christ is to live joyfully. To be in Jesus is to be in joy. You could say to be in Jesus is to enjoy life. That's where it begins. That's where it ends. And I would submit to you that you don't know joy until you've been born again. Now some would say, well, I'm offended by that. Yeah, because you're not joyful. It's easy. You want to know joy now and forever. You need to be reborn. Born by faith in Jesus Christ. To know joy is to know Jesus. To know Jesus is to know joy. And I'll tell you, if you right now are joyless in your life, you need to spend some time with Jesus. I mean, get in one of the Gospels at least to start. Talk to Him. 
Walk with Him. Think about Him. It's one of the reasons I keep going back to Israel, by the way. I love being in Jesus' hometown. I love walking where He walked. Including on the water. I haven't quite mastered that one yet. (laughs) Joy is Jesus. And Jesus is joy. And to live joyfully is to live Christ. Look down at verse 21 of chapter 1. Paul writes, and we just sang it, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And to some outside of the joy of Jesus, that might sound weird. To die is gain. That's the last thing I want. Hey, the focus here is on the life and person of Jesus. And if I live now, I live for Him. And if I die, I go to be with Him. So either way, it's Christ. Either way, I am living with joyful expectation. And if you know Jesus, you know there is nothing more true than to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. Paul goes so far as to say, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's what it's all about, man. That's the good life. That's the only life worth living. Is in knowing the joy of knowing Jesus. Skip on down to chapter 4, verse 13. Paul even says, I can do all things through Him, that is through Christ who strengthens me. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is my strength. So the joy of Christ in me and through me is what gives me the strength to get through even the toughest days. Even when my circumstances stink. Listen, those who dismiss Christianity often do so because they look at it and they think of it as another system of rules and regulations. You got your Hinduism, you got your Buddhism, you got your Judaism, you've got your uh, Islam, you've got your world religions, and you've got your Christianity. And those are all the different systems of belief. And you, and you need to pick your system. You know, your system in America maybe should be Christian because you got kind of a history of, of being somewhat of a Judeo Christian uh, country. So Judaism or Christianity would be good here, although Islam's really making a play. But you know, pick your religion. And we've got religion courses and religion classes in the high school that compare all the religions. And I'm here to tell you, Christianity doesn't belong in that class at all. At all. Because Christianity is not a religion. Comparing Christianity to Hinduism is like comparing the Bible to every other book ever written by man. You can't put them in the same library. They they don't coexist. It just doesn't work. God's Word is so phenomenal, so beyond anything else ever penned. You can't stack them on the same table and even make comparison. And same with Christianity. It is not a religious system. Have we been over this? That it's not a religion? And that that's not what this is about? I mean, honestly, if, if I'm being handed, here are all the world's religions... Pick one. My answer would be I pick none. Who needs it? Who needs more rules? Let me see. Show of hands. Did I tell you that on Cornet Bay, there was a, a, a move of, of some of the homeowners there because a lot of people were speeding along Cornet Bay. I'm sure it wasn't me, but people were. And so the movement was, hey, we're, we're going to have a special meeting and see if we can get the police to do more uh, con- patrolling of Cornet Bay Road. I'm like, are you kidding me? When I get off Highway 20 and hit Cornet Bay, I start to breathe again. That's when I don't have to put it in cruise control to make sure that I, you know. I mean, I hit Highway 20, and if you all don't know this, you will. You go over the speed limit on Highway 20, and they will nail you. So we got this homeowners associations and groups saying, hey, we need to, we need to bring the police onto Cornet Bay. And I'm going, no, I don't want more rules. I don't want more regulation. I don't want more control. I don't want that anywhere in my life. I've got enough. Thank you. I don't need that. But I need Jesus. Oh, I need Jesus desperately. I need the one who, when I walk with Him, I I feel joy. When I'm around Him, I sense peace. When I'm by Him, I feel strength and protection and security. That's what we want. That's what our hearts long for. Not religion. 
And Paul is not talking about, in Philippians, religion one iota. He's talking about Christ. You will notice in this letter to Philippi that he displays an unusually large number of references to Jesus. might not seem a surprise. We know that Jesus is all over the Bible. But in Philippians, it seems like larger than usual in terms of the size of the letter. Just four chapters, but it's Jesus, 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 Jesus. And watch this. These Christ references emphasize Jesus as having what Gordon Fee calls, quote, the sole privilege to the title Lord. He has the sole privilege. Now, for you and me, we're used to that. We call Him Lord. We pray Lord. We say Lord Jesus. We even have Lord in the whole sinner's prayer thing that you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Okay, good. We got that. Lord. Whatever. We don't understand. Not the way they would have understood in Philippi in a letter littered with Lord. What are you saying, Rick? The word Lord, kurios, occurs 15 times in four chapters. More than in any other book, by comparison and relative to the size of the book. And the high point is chapter 2, verse 9. Listen to this. For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a passage I've read, I don't know, a thousand times if I've read it once. Heard it over and over many times that we will confess, all tongues will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hold on to that thought just for a moment. He is Lord, Paul underscores and, and declares again and again. And then he declares Jesus by one other title that he uses only once in the whole book, but it's enough. And it is the title, Soter. Kurios and Soter. What is Soter? Savior. Oh, okay. Lord and Savior. I get it. No, I don't think you do. Lord and Savior together. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, a Soter, the Kurios, the Lord Jesus Christ. Savior and Lord. What's the big deal? I'll tell you what the big deal is. In the first century, Philippi was like little Rome. Philippi, as a city, was called transplanted Rome. It was so fiercely, intensely loyal in allegiance to Rome and to the emperor. And at that time, when Paul wrote this letter, the emperor of Rome alone had the right to be called Curios Soter. Lord and Savior. You didn't call anybody else that. That was only for the emperor, who, by the way, in 62 AD was Nero. Emperor Nero, that slaughterer of Christians, that killer of followers of Jesus Christ. Same man who dipped Christians in hot wax, stuck them up on poles, and lit them on fire alive while he raced through his gardens in his chariot crying out, The light of the world! The light of the world! Sick. But he was Lord and Savior. And to call someone else that was treasonous. In fact, this letter we're about to get into, for all its joyful friendliness, is radically defiant. I love it. It is subversive, it is revolutionary, and those living in Philippi under Roman influence at the time would even have called it traitorous. Hey, to live Christ in the first century was to openly defy the lordship of Nero. It was to openly dismiss the salvation of the emperor of Rome. It was to say, Nero, Nero, he's not our man. It's Jesus. And I believe today the same holds true that to live Christ is to do so in joyful defiance. We live Christ in joyful defiance of this world and its world system. We live Christ in joyful defiance of authority that would push down, that would push against 
the expression of love and faith in Jesus. We live Christ in joyful defiance of the ruler of this world whose name is Satan, the adversary. Why? Hey, because we're citizens of a better country. We are citizens of a heavenly one. We're looking up, not looking down. Joyful defiance. So it was 49, maybe 50 A.D. Paul decides it's time to go back out on his second missionary journey. And he gathered with him Silas, his compadre, and they headed out to retrace the steps of his first missionary journey to go back through Galatia and Asia and to strengthen the churches there. That was the intent. I also believe part of the intent was to move through Galatia, across Asia, and then make their way up north into Bithynia. Bithynia was a huge population base up around the Black Sea. And it seems that Paul had laid in, had laid out some plans to travel through there, strengthen the churches, and continue to spread the gospel up north into Bithynia. God had other plans. Turn in your Bibles back to Acts chapter 16. Acts 16. As they came into Galatia, and while you're turning there, they came to the town of Lystra. And in Lystra they met a young man, a young Greek boy, who would become one of Paul's favorite protégés, his beloved son, Timothy. So now Timothy joins Paul and Silas. You've got Paul, Silas, Timothy. They're continuing now into Galatia. But there in Galatia something happened. Things went awry. Paul got struck with what we believe was some kind of Asian fever that was so debilitating it left him half blind. It literally sidetracked the mission, the the second missionary journey. It laid Paul out, perhaps for weeks, we don't know how long, but he was laid out there in Galatia, uneven, able to, to preach the gospel, absolutely wiped out. It's interesting that it was at right at that time that they picked up another compadre to travel with. Ironically, a doctor by the name of Luke. So now you have Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy. And Paul's down with this fever, and suddenly Luke shows up in the narrative in Acts 16, and we realize, huh, I wonder if they called on Luke to come, you know, serve and care for and look after Paul, and Paul saved him. Luke gets saved, and he joins the party. Now you got Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy, quite a little dream team there, and they then begin to move on, and in verse 6 it tells us, they pass through the Phrygian and Galatian region, Having been, note this, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. That's remarkable. God saying, listen, I'm going to send you here, but don't speak my word. What? That's weird. It goes on and says, after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia. I told you, the Black Sea region. Trying to head north, (laughs) and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. How were they forbidden by the Spirit? How did the Spirit of Jesus not permit them? Well, we know Paul got really sick. Circumstances were not going well. In fact, the second missionary journey of Paul, the second missionary journey up to this point, it's not good. Not a whole lot of impact. Sickness and, and derailment and detours and things were not going well for Paul and the other guys at this point. You know, it reminds me that my happy plans are often divinely detoured. You know, the things that I think are the way to go often get sidelined or sidetracked by the Lord for the sake of joy. We're told in Proverbs 16, verse 9, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And so while Paul wanted to go north, wanted to do his mission as he saw fit, God said, no, I have other plans. I redirected this man. Paul, with permanently damaged eyes, now gets a vision. Verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia. Note that, a man of Macedonia. Keep that in mind was standing and appealing to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul had eyes for Asia, but the Spirit forbade him. Paul was looking, gazing north to Bithynia. Jesus barred the way. And it's so weird to me because in human reason and in human planning, Bithynia would have been the place to go. 
Go where there's a lot of people. Go where there's a large population base. Head north, young man. Go, Paul. That's where you can have the impact. But instead, God gives him a vision of one Macedonian man. Just one guy. Come help us. And meanwhile, while we at this point would conclude that the mission was not very successful, we also know that joining Paul and Silas were Luke and Timothy. Thanks to Luke, we have the book of Luke and the, and the Acts of the Apostles. Thanks to Timothy, we have First and Second Timothy, and these two had a dramatic impact on the mission of the church in the first century. All because God was planning the steps of Paul. God was directing him. And so there's this one Macedonian man. He says, come help us. Who was he? We don't know. But we know that God is opening the door now for the first time to leave Asia and head across the Aegean Sea into Europe. Verse 11. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrake, and on the day following to Neapolis, where, by the way, they have some great ice cream. And from there to Philippi, note this, which was a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. And ironically, the first European convert to Christianity was not a Macedonian man. Verse 13, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Philippi was one of four Roman colonies in this area in Greek Macedonia. Where's Macedonia? It's northern Greece today. If you look at a map, and you can do this in the back of your Bibles if you want to, look up where that is or, or look when you get home. Northern Greece, that area up on the top uh, north, I guess the northwest part of the Aegean Sea. Is, was Macedonia, especially at this time. And there were just four Macedonian cities, the largest of which was Philippi, and all of it was colonized and, and controlled by Rome. Philippi was founded by the father of Alexander the Great, a guy by the name of Philip Macedon, which is why Macedonia. And that was back in 356 B.C. for you historians. Rome conquered it in 168 B.C., and by 42 B.C. it became this very entrenched Roman colony, transplanted Rome. Philippi is about 13 miles from the coast. Neapolis was right on the coast. You travel on inland to get to Philippi. It was uh, situated on what's called the Ignatian Way, the famous Roman Way. In fact, that went right through Philippi. Philippi was on either side of the Roman Way. And right near it, it was at the base of Mount Orbelis, which was a huge mountain there that was the Acropolis of Philippi. When you think about the Parthenon in in Athens, you think about the Acropolis there in Athens, same idea. That was their place of pagan worship, and it was that mountain right above Philippi. But just outside of Philippi was a river that ran. The river at the time was called the Gangites River. It's called the Angiska River today. And at that river, Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy, coming out of town on Sabbath, met up with a group of women. We know something else about Philippi. We know the town was very lean on Jewish population. Very, very heathenistic, very pagan, and very few Jews. Well, how do we know that? There was no synagogue. To have a synagogue in a town, at that time you had to have at least ten active Jewish men. So there weren't even ten men to be found in Philippi. Therefore, the women and any men who would join them met on Shabbat out at the river. This would be a typical meeting place in a non-Jewish town for Jewish people on Shabbat. A place of prayer. You'll note in the text that Paul and Silas and the boys, they kind of had a sense that we need to go somewhere and do some worshiping on Sabbath. Let's go to the river. Perhaps we'll find some Jews there. So they head out there, and of course they do. They find a small ladies' prayer group there by the river. And Paul begins to teach them about Jesus. And in verse 14, we're told a woman named Lydia, 
from the city of Thyatira, that's over in Asia, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. Think about this. Paul had a vision of a Macedonian man And yet the first person to convert to Christianity in Europe was a West Asian woman. What's what's God doing here? Why a vision of a Macedonian man only to have an Asian woman get saved? How, How does that work? That sounds like the proverbial old bait and switch. Let me ask you, have you ever been baited and switched by God? We were... uh, talking for a while about the idea of adoption. In fact, Cheryl and I have been talking about the idea of adoption uh, since before we were married. She asked me one time, we were just dating, would you ever want to adopt? And I'm like, not before we're married. <laughs> but then over time, it was always this question over the years, every now and then would come up, would you want to adopt? And I just, I'm nah, no, nah, no thanks. No, mark that off my list. That's not something that I am called to do. Right? And Cheryl, after several years, just kind of stopped talking about it. Left it up to the Lord. And then the time came, this is about uh, nine years ago, when Kathy Pittis would not leave us alone. She began sending adoption photos. Now we had some friends who adopted. I've shared this story, I think, with you before. We had friends who adopted, and I was a champion of my friends adopting. I was there to support them. God bless you. Good choice. We're with you. <laughs> and these pictures would come through and they come into my email and I'd see Kathy sending another load of adoption pictures here are the kids you know and I look through and I go yeah delete 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 God bless them delete 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 and then one afternoon a picture shows up on my computer a little boy in Ghana Africa named Apollos and God flipped the switch in my heart that was the bait I came out of my office with the computer. I showed Cheryl. I said, look at this picture. I, I could adopt this, this little boy. He's about seven, eight years old, just a little bit younger than Hayden. Perfect timing. Fits our family parameters exactly as I saw fit. And so Cheryl was like I was looking at the same picture. Fantastic. We start the ball rolling, call uh, Beacon House in Ghana. We get all the paperwork together, start working that way. Cheryl goes out to Ghana to meet Apollos. While she's there, she calls me. Hey, listen, I've met Apollos, he's wonderful, but there are these two girls here, Anna Marie and Naomi. Would you consider? I'm like, no! Stop! I knew this would happen. I send you off to Ghana, and you're like, oh, we got more kids. And no! One boy, age of eight, that's it. Well, you know the rest of the story. God used this little boy to get our attention. But I can tell you today that I cannot imagine life without Anna Marie, Naomi, and David, who wasn't even born at the time. These are my kids. They were intended to be my children from the time they were born. I didn't know that. They didn't know that. And it wasn't this other little boy. Man, classic divine bait and switch. But you know what? And understand this. I took some time with that to tell you this. Often, the vision will not be the thing. Oftentimes, God will give you a vision for something or a direction. And when it all comes to pass, it was not what the original vision was. It wasn't a Macedonian man. It was a West Asian woman, Lydia, who needed to hear the gospel. But the Macedonian man got Paul to get on a boat. Got them moving in the right direction. And God will do what He needs. He's not going to deceive you. Don't, don't misunderstand. Apollos is adopted and with a family and doing very well. And our family is so richly blessed, I can't even tell you. So we weren't, we weren't deceived or tricked. I mean, God was open all the way through. Well, the story continues. Because Lydia and her household get baptized, and, and the next week then Paul's walking along, he and Silas, and they're, they're starting to teach the gospel there in Philippi. And as Paul's teaching the gospel, (laughs) he starts to get annoyed. You see, there's this pagan slave girl, demon-possessed, 
following them all around going, these two are servants of the Most High God. These two are servants of Jesus. And Paul's like, oh, I've had it. She was like, have you ever seen the YouTube Annoying Orange? Okay, imagine that, the annoying orange on the body of a slave girl walking around. You know, and that's, that's the picture. Paul's just had it and, and cast the demon out out of sheer irritation. <laughs> I'm sick of this. Come out of her. Demon comes out of her and her owners lose their income. And there is an uproar. In fact, Philippi flips. And they grab Paul and Silas and they start to just beat the tar out of them. They drag them off to prison and they throw them in these jail cells. So much for the joy of the Lord. Until midnight. It's dark. And Paul decides now's the time to start the Philippi prison ministry. And he and Silas, they start to pray. And they start to sing. And no doubt they're just having a grand old time. Feet in the stocks, hands in the stocks, singing and praising the Lord in the pit of this Philippian prison. And it was a pit. You ought to see the archaeological find where those two men were stuck. They're praising the Lord. All of a sudden, God's getting into it. And an earthquake happens. See, when God dances, earthquakes occur. The thing shook. The bars bust loose. The chains fall off. The prisoners are set free. The jailer comes rushing in. He gets saved in all his household. Now they're down at the river getting baptized just like Lydia and her family. They're at what what locals call today, they call it the River of Lydia. Because it's where she was baptized. You have Lydia and her, her household, the jailer and his household, a handful of prisoners, and that is First Church of Philippi. That's where it started. First Church of Philippi, not like First Methodist or, or First Reformed or Second Baptist, twice removed on their mother's side. They literally were the first church. And this little group of people is where it started. A couple other women may have been there, Iodia and Syntyche. You'll meet them later in Philippians. Guy by the name of Clement, he's part of this deal. Small little living room church. And these would become some of Paul's closest friends of his life. Paul and Silas, after the event with the demon-possessed girl and the jail time and all that, they get out, they're set free, and, but the, the uh, rulers of the city say, please leave, you've got to leave. And they pressure them, and so finally Paul and Silas, they head on out. They go down to Thessalonica. Luke stays behind. And the first church of Philippi just begins to grow. Now, ten years later, so that happened around 50, so maybe a dozen years later, 62 AD now, Paul sits himself incarcerated, chained up to the Praetorian Guard in Rome, and he begins to write a letter to his friends in Philippi. And as you read this letter, you can't do anything but imagine that he was just busting. That there was a smile on his face from ear to ear as he thought about his friends, as he thought about his loved ones. He himself in prison sensing the joyful life in Christ. And again, that's what this whole letter is about. Life in Christ. Joy in Christ. And quickly going back to the opening greeting of Philippians, I want to give you something. That's all background, a sense of where we're going. Joy in living Christ. But i got to give you just four points. <laughs> four points. And you're going, potluck, potluck. I'm going to give you four Ps. Potluck will be number five. So it's just around the corner. Four what you could call sweet peas in the Garden of Philippi. Okay, And just note these quickly. They're worth seeing in verse 3. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always offering prayer with joy. Prayerful joy or joyful prayer. Joyful prayer. Paul can't keep himself from smiling when he thinks of his friends in Philippi. Paul starts to pray and he's grinning ear to ear and that is joyful prayer. Listen, when does your average person tend to pray? I'm not talking necessarily about a follower of Jesus, although many followers of Jesus, it might be the same way. When do you really kick in praying? I, I, what I heard was, so, 
So it's great that we're all practicing our prayer language, but when, when is it? <laughs> you know what? what? What I think I was hearing? Crisis, Crisis. trouble, challenge, fear, doubt, incidents. I need you, Lord. I'm crying out to you, Lord. Hey, the joy of living Christ causes our prayer not to be hapless. We don't pray because we're in a difficult moment praying hope against hope. Oh God, get me out of this. Now see, that's how the world prays. That's how the non-believer prays. Things go wrong, I'll look to God. Things are fine, I don't need nothing. And too many believers pray that same way. But prayer, joyful prayer, the kind of prayer when he says, I am offering always prayer with joy in my ever, every prayer for you all. When Paul says pray unceasingly, when Paul says back in Ephesians chapter 6, he says pray at all times in the Spirit. When Paul's talking about prayer, brothers and sisters, this is joy. It is joyful prayer. It's not religious ritual. It's not somber sanctimony. Oh, thou Lord God. Bless now thy servant. Man, joyful prayer. I can guarantee you Paul did not pray without joy. In in the book of Job, Job is depressed. I mean, he's, he's had it bad. Everything that can go wrong did go wrong in Job's life. And he's sitting in the ashes and he's sitting in despair and three idiot friends come along and try and talk to him. And they're all wrong. And they're all, you know, spouting platitudes, trying to make him feel better, trying to inject some sense of happiness. And at the same time, they just condemn him and they bring him down more until Elihu comes along. Elihu, who is kind of like the Holy Spirit in the book of Job, shows up and starts to say some things that you're going, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Listen to what Elihu told Job. Job 33, 23. He said, if there is an angel as mediator for him, one out of a thousand to remind a man what is right, then let him be gracious to him and say, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresher than in youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then he will pray to God, for he, that is God, will accept him, that he may seek his face with joy. And you know what Elihu just stated? A remarkable prophecy. Elihu makes a comment. He's talking about Jesus, the angel mediator. Angel is malak in the Hebrew. It just means messenger. What was Jesus but a messenger mediator? The only mediator between God and man. And this messenger comes down and the verse says, deliver him from going down to the pit. Well, guess what Jesus did? He made it so that we are delivered from going down to the pit. He said, in him I have found a ransom. Jesus is our ransom. Elihu is telling Job about Jesus 2,000 years before Jesus was born on the earth, and he says so that we may seek His face with joy. Because where Jesus is, there is joy. And our prayer is joyful because we're talking through, to, and by Jesus. Joyful prayer. And Paul prays joyfully because of, secondly, their joyful participation. Verse 5. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Hey, we are in this joy together. We're in this joy together. Feeling down? Look around. Go ahead, do it. Look around. Look at each other. The person sitting right by you, go ahead and look at them. I know you haven't looked at them all morning. Take a look. And you know what you're doing? You're laughing. You're smiling. You can't not smile. You're looking at each other going, <laughs> Rick's kind of an idiot, but hey, what's up? How you doing? We're in this joy together. We are walking this life in joyful participation. We're in the partnership, my friends, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to how the angels respond in, in this kind of participation, this idea of seeing people saved. Which I think is our greatest joy. The angels, Luke 15, 7, Jesus said there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. One person gets saved and the angels break loose. 
whooping it up and hollering and cheering and joy in heaven. Joy as we do not understand. Luke 15.10, Jesus says in the same way, I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's joyful participation. But you know what? Angels aren't even in the game. We're in the game. The angels have, you know, maybe 50-yard line seats to the Super Bowl. We're on the field. We think that we get excited when the Hawks run a touchdown in the Super Bowl. We're all like, yeah, look at what we did. Yeah. Sit down and eat your chili. You didn't do anything. You're just a spectator. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Christianity is joyful participation in the salvation of lost people all around us. That's where the joy is. If you're walking in your Christian life and you're like, oh, I'm not sure I'm so... I don't know. I mean, joy. Yeah, I guess. Maybe you haven't seen someone saved. Maybe you haven't walked someone in the faithful prayer in Jesus. Maybe you haven't seen them get into the water of baptism and you've just been on the sidelines with the angels going, woohoo! Our participation is only limited by our willingness to get out on the field. Get out on the field. Participate in the gospel. There's great joy there. Skip down to verse 7, number 3. Verse 7, he says, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Now that would be translated kidneys. (laughs) But it doesn't translate well, so we say heart. I have you in my kidneys. Technically what that means in the way that it was a euphemism that meant I have you deep inside me. We would say in the heart, they would say in the kidneys. So that's what he says. I have you deep inside me. And he goes on and says, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers. That's sweet pea number three. You are all partakers. A joyful partaking. Joyful prayer, joyful participation, Joyful partaking, but partaking is not the same as participation. The word partaking in the Greek, it's different. Paul says, you're partaking with me. And yes, they were suffering, he was suffering, so in a way they were partaking together. But the word is bigger than that. The word means to consume. So you are consuming this Christianity with me. It also means to contribute. To consume and to contribute. So if you're coming to the potluck here in just a few minutes, you better have something to contribute. (laughs) And if you don't, run down, pick up some chicken, bring it back, extra crispy. I would appreciate we're all in this together. No, I'm kidding. If you didn't bring anything, please stay. Participate and partake. But it's both. It's consuming and it's contributing. You want to know why Paul wrote the letter to the church at Philippi? Why we have this glorious doctrine about living Christ? Because they had just sent him a huge monetary gift that he did not expect. Not only did they send him a huge gift, but they sent it to him out of their poverty. Gordon Fee says, The equation of joy plus poverty equals generosity. It is not joy plus riches, and it's not happiness plus a bonus check. It's joy and poverty yields generosity. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 about the church at Philippi that in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. This church gave probably, possibly more than any other church and they could not afford to do it. Why did they do it? They were full of joy. It wasn't very practical. Not good stewardship. It's a faith issue. Filled with joy. Listen, marginal Christianity will suck the life out of you. Marginal Christianity. If you just show up here on occasion, consider yourself, yeah, I'm kind of one of them. But live your life and marginalize your faith it will wear you out. You will never be good enough. You will never accomplish enough. You will always wander around feeling guilty and shamed that you're not doing more. Marginal Christianity will suck the life out of you. 
fully partaking is where you will find fullness of joy. If you want to know full joy in Christ, dive in headfirst in every possible way. And let Christ be your life. And finally, there's joyful prayer, joyful participation, joyful partaking, and number four, joyful perfection. Before we get to number five, joyful potluck. Joyful perfection. Look at verse six and we'll end. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And this for me is a life verse. I will perfect it. He will perfect it in you until the day of Christ Jesus. I have it painted on a wooden plaque that sits on the wall above my desk. I read this verse every single day. It has very special meaning for me, and maybe I'll share that with you later on in the study. But I am convinced, Paul writes, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. But here's the thing. It's not just that he's going to finish what he started in you. It's that He's going to finish what He started in you. Plural. It's the plural form of the word. Paul is not talking to an individual. He's talking to the church. He's saying, Philippi, what God started there by the river with Lydia and her family and the jailer and his household and a few prisoners and a couple of others, what He started there, man, just wait till the day of Christ Jesus to see what the impact will have been. And that's what He's saying to us, Bridge Fellowship. The good work that He started in you. I read this and I thought back 13 years ago. And I went, wow. He hasn't even, hasn't even gotten going yet. I mean, He's just begun. He will perfect this work. He will perfect the church. He who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, Jude 24 tells us. He's going to perfect you in joy. That excites me to no end. The two other references in Philippians to the word joy, I mentioned there were two beyond joy and rejoicing. It's the word sunkairo, and it means joy shared. Paul says in Philippians 2.17, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So how are we doing in the joy department? Are you lacking joy? You need joy? You're looking for joy? You wish you had more joy? Verse 8, he says, For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You know what that tells us? It tells us that there is affection in Christ Jesus. It tells us how Jesus feels about you, feels about me. When Paul says, I have you in my heart, I have you in my kidneys... When he says the affection of Jesus Christ, he's talking about Jesus' guts. I have for you the guts of Jesus. Is your fellowship here at the bridge, is it grumpy or is it gutsy? If it's gutsy, it will be joyful. If it's grumpy, well, that's self-explanatory. And don't come to me and tell me that no one in this church shares any joy with you. You share the joy. You do it. God wants us in this place to share the joy. Amen? Amen. Alright, you share the joy of Jesus, you will live Christ. That's the point. Joy, which is the small publicity of the pagan, is the gigantic secret of the Christian. Let's let the secret out. Let's stand up together. Hey, if you're lacking in any joy, or maybe you know someone who is that you want to pray for, Or if you just want to receive Jesus this morning, I invite you to come while we sing this song. Come to one of the four tables. Prayer team, go to the tables. Shepherds, go to the tables. Let's make sure no table is unmanned or unwomaned. And we're here to receive you and to pray with you that the joy of the Lord might be your strength. Amen.